Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at Costa Rica Travel Pass dot com or calling one eight seven 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 eight zero seven two seven seven. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at Mormon dot com. On the right hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou ground of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. And you can also find this podcast on iTunes as well as on its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. In today's episode, we interview John Montgomery, a faithful Latter-day Saint who encountered ridicule and persecution as a teenager and a young adult, causing him to spend time out of the church. He tells of his time exploring other faiths, his encounter with Hugh Nibley and Farms, the defending of his faith, and his return to the church with a greater appreciation for faith. I hope you enjoy the interview with John Montgomery. Upon its conclusion, stay tuned as we have included a talk from Brother Montgomery where he expounds on his views on faith. Now on to my interview with John Montgomery. John Montgomery, welcome to Mormon Discussion. Hi, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Glad to have you aboard. You and I have had uh, some conversations back and forth, and I felt like it would be of worth to my listeners to give you a chance to share your story. And so I'm really excited about having this chance to sit down with you and to, to have this discussion, to talk about some things, and for you to share the experiences that you've had so that my listeners, especially uh, a large group of them who either are in the midst of a faith crisis or or who perhaps have even come out the other side in, dis- in disbelief, might have an opportunity to see uh, how other individuals handle their faith crisis and, and how they deal with different uh, types of experiences in the church that, that sometimes cause these things to happen. So to kind of start us off, Wondered if you might uh, share with us some background about uh, who you are so my listeners can get a feel for you. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a married guy with uh, a great family. I live where I want to live. I love my life. I'm active in church. And, um, you know, I guess I'm kind of a Bill Real groupie, awesome. uh, a, a fan. And I wanted to uh, reach out to you and say thank you. And, and from that... You know, it kind of uh, came up that maybe you thought my story had some uh, some value to people who maybe were going through similar things. Excellent. So you and you and the other two 
uh, groupies that I have all listen to the show, and I appreciate all three of you. Yeah. So, so thank you. Um, tell me a little bit about your growing up. Yeah, so my uh, my parents were both in the military when they met. Uh, my mom was a nurse, and my dad was a, a logistician. And um, they came from different backgrounds. My dad was from Kentucky. He is from Kentucky. And um, he joined the military as a, as a way to get uh, to college uh, and to support himself. And my, my mother joined because she wanted to learn nursing. She came from from Idaho and uh, a very large family and, um, you know, not, uh, not privileged uh, circumstances. So uh, they met, they married. We, we stayed a military family, and we moved around a lot. Um, my dad was, was Lutheran, and I have, you know, memories of, uh, as a young kid, you know, stealing st- sips from his beer stein and, you know, lots of pipes around and, uh, you know, he, he would smoke out on the patio and I still love the smell of pipes, you know, smoking right. pipes. And, uh, my mom was probably the only active LDS person, uh, in her family, but a family that, you know, you know, raised in Pocatello, Idaho, the church was down the street. Um, they were all probably members, but I think she was, you know, maybe the only one that, that stayed with the church. Excellent. And so your mom was, was born in the church? I, I think so, yeah, yeah, and um, always stayed active and was a great influence on my dad and, and got him involved with the missionaries and, you know, a classic story of a, a guy who goes through five or six sets of missionaries, lots of questions, but by the time I'm around five years old, we're living, uh, my dad's stationed at the, the air base in Utah, and we're being sealed in the Ogden Temple. I still remember the powder blue ceiling room and my primary teacher's uh, beehive hairdo. It was just a great experience. So I, I have, you know, siblings at that time. You know, I had an older brother and a younger sister, and more kids joined the family uh, in the covenant. But uh, it was it was a good thing to be a member of the church. We were, you know, living in Utah and, and lots of friends around, and it was um, a, a great experience. But by the time I'm Seven or eight years old, my dad gets a, an assignment to move to Southeast Asia. So we get on a plane, leave all of our friends, and for three years live on an island uh, in southern Japan. And um, it, it's a pretty good environment to be a kid, to live in the military on, on a base. Uh, very accepting, a lot of cultural, racial diversity. Um, everybody gets along really well, and, and it was a great place to be a kid. Terrific beaches. We had a jungle behind our house. There were all these crazy Japanese tombs in my backyard. All kinds of fun things for kids to explore and enjoy uh, and get into trouble with. And, uh, you know, occasional typhoon day where you don't have to go to school. Awesome. A uh, couple questions for you. First off, your dad was a, a logistician. Someone who is in that field of, of mathematics sometimes tends to have a very... Uh, rigid approach to things. Was your dad kind of, when he came into the church, was he kind of like a fundamental kind of outlook on the church? Um, I, I don't know. I think it was more emotional for him. Yeah, I, I think it was. We've talked on rare occasions about his conversion. You know, we went through a long period where I just didn't want to talk about my faith with him, and I didn't ask him. And lately, in the last few years, we've taken taken a lot of trips together, just the two of us, we went to uh, Northern Ireland and Italy to check out some uh, some leads on some, some genealogy. have one 
one Italian great-grandfather who came to the U.S. as a, he was, he was shanghaied. He was hit on the head and was, uh, captured and brought to the U.S. to work as a pedal harpist on a, uh, a steamer on the Mississippi. (laughs) (laughs) That's my only Italian connection, but we're trying to find this guy's family. Living in Southeast Asia for a while, was being in the military, did that shelter you from the Asian culture, or was it kind of unique being in the church in the midst of Southeast Asia? Yeah, it was great. We we went to a meeting house uh, about 30 minutes away from the base, and uh, my dad was, I think I said, the branch president of the servicemen's branch, but we shared that that meeting house with um, at least one other ward or branch of uh, Japanese members, and I, I loved it. I mean, we, we did everything we could to try and get out into Japanese culture. Um, we lived off the base for a part of our time there and had lots of friends who were not American. You know, I would love to say that my Japanese extended beyond, uh, you know, how much is this and what's this and and uh, insults that kids throw at each other, but <laughs> I'm afraid I've lost most of it. You said you joined the church when you were, that your family joined the church when you were quite young, but you had a couple of older brothers. Did they wrap their arms around the church as well? Yeah, I have one other other brother, uh, one older brother, and uh, he ended up, uh, you know, years later going back to Japan and served a mission in uh, Sapporo. I, I would say that of my siblings, I'm probably... Uh, the only one that had a real, you know, time outside the church. Early childhood, church is very positive. Uh, families having great experiences in the church. So let's fast forward a little bit. What happens uh, in high school? Uh, well, when we come back from Japan, we, we move to Ohio and things are fine there. Then my dad retires. You know, they, they want him to be a full colonel. And part of that compromise is that, you leave your family for yet another six months, and he said, "Look, I've got six kids. I'm not. I'm out." So he he retired and went to work for a defense contractor, uh, selling. He was on the team that helped sell fighter jets, and uh, we moved to Texas and um, had one year in junior high that was sort of you know typical miserable uh, new kid, and then uh, four years of high school in Texas where. Had a core group of friends, uh, most of whom were not LDS. I think I was one of maybe seven to ten uh, active LDS kids in my high school of probably 2,500 kids. I could be totally wrong on the numbers, but I think that's right. Gotcha. So you've got a small group of Latter-day Saints, and, and you talk about being picked on a little bit. How did that affect uh, you and the church or your membership? Yeah, when you're um, when you have no natural you know, reasons for kids to like you. <laughs> I mean, you're not great at sports. You don't have, uh, you know, a car. <laughs> you know, and, and you're, and you're different. It, it was not, it wasn't ideal. Um, I had, you know, good friends who were Baptists and Methodists. And I think even the few people that I stay in touch with from high school, um, very few people that I stay in touch with from high school, none of them LDS. And, um, uh, some really great people. So, um, but, you know, you would have times when at random, it seemed like you'd, you'd be hit by a drive-by, you know, evangelical, you know, hit. And, uh, somebody would, uh, you know, just come up to you and get in your face for, for whatever reason and say, you know, our minister was telling us about, uh, Mormons and, uh, you get, you know, you're going to hell, right? Ouch. So here you are in high school. You're getting uh, picked on by 
from time to time from the evangelicals. Yeah, mostly. I mean, the the time that sticks out for me, there I guess there are two. You know, one is I'm in the lunchroom and a a guy comes up to me and gets right in my face and just starts saying all these things about Mormons and this is right when the God Makers movie has come out. And that was really uncomfortable because it was so, you know, it was such a public rebuke. And then the other time I had gone skiing, we went up to uh, Durango. You know, um, Texans have no business skiing, but uh, there we were. And I, I was with a, a Baptist church group. And, you know, some friends had invited me, and I thought, well, this would be great. I'd love to learn to ski. Sure. Um, so we, we go on this trip, and one of the the main things that happened on this trip was it was a it was a short trip it was only a, a you know a few days but um one of the nights everybody got together and it was supposed to be like a prayer meeting but what i remember is uh you know me bringing my seminary bible you know with all my scripture markings in it and uh spending probably 30 to 40 very uncomfortable minutes with a youth minister who sort of turned on me and had, I think really it's fair to say, you know, sort of attacked my beliefs in front of a group of, you know, 40 kids, you know, and I'm 16, 17 at the time. And, you know, I didn't need that. That was, that was not, um, that was not great. I mean, I think I did okay for my team, but, um, it stuck with me that, you know, why do I have to deal with all this? All these other kids, nobody's harassing them. The Baptists aren't really messing with the Methodists or the Presbyterians. Why am I part of a church that is so hated? Because it really was, you know, this this feeling of hatred. When you would tell people that you were Mormon, you got this response uh, that was just totally out of proportion to anything I'd ever seen anywhere else. Let me ask you a question. You, you had this experience on this ski trip. Did you feel like as soon as you walk in the room, they see you carrying this, you know, quad set of scriptures that, you know, to any Christian realizes that that's not a normal set of scriptures, and all of a sudden this minister starts to jump in and pick on you? Or do you feel like on some level they knew you were Mormon coming into this and kind of were preparing for you? Uh, everybody knew. Gotcha. I don't, I don't know how much preparation there was. I just know what yeah. happened. Uh, you know, who knows what they were thinking, but what happened was that the guy really had a prepared series of questions for me. Right. I remember pulling out the scripture in the, you know, uh, about where we talk about lost scriptures like, you know, Nathan the prophet and, um, and then I remember some discussion about faith versus works. You know, this guy was ready. He, he had encountered Mormons before, or he had studied, you know, the methods of attack. Gotcha. So you come home from this ski trip, and over the next, you know, weeks and months, uh, how are things going with your testimony and your activity within the church? You know, I, I remember um, being active in seminary. I had that core group of friends who, you know, scouts by this time is sort of over with, and uh, but I had a great scout troop, and then... You know, I worked, I, I worked a lot, and uh, um, the place where I worked, I think most of the staff was either active LDS or investigating, so we all sort of clung together, and uh, so I had that core group of friends that I, I stayed with, and 
the testimony thing really wasn't what it should have been. I can't tell you that I read the Book of Mormon before college. I can't tell you that I, you know, ever really tried to achieve a strong testimony. I just did what I needed to do to, to get through, you know, get to college. So what was college like? My freshman year was a, was a great time. Um, I attended BYU as a freshman and had a lot of fun, met some great friends. Um, in fact, one of those friends uh, is instrumental in sort of my, my bigger picture conversion. And I got to see him yesterday, and we, we skied together for the first time in, you know, probably 15 or 20 years. So it, it was a great time. I, I loved my, my religion classes, loved my generals, and, um, you know, really, really no problems. Was, was happy to uh, have spent that first year there. What changed? Well, I turned 19. <laughs> it was t- t- time to not be a kid anymore. Time to decide what you really right. stand up for, what you really believe in. Right. And being a member of the church, you've got a mission kind of hovering over you I had a mission well. hovering and uh, needed to make a decision on that. Uh, picked up a, a girlfriend in, uh, back home and um, that was, was not helpful to my, <laughs> you know, my church attendance or anything else. Um, so, uh went back to BYU for a third semester as a freshman and just thought, well, I'll figure this out. Um, I wasn't um, sure I wanted to serve a mission, didn't know how that would go over with either my parents, who really wanted me to serve but never really pressured me, and um, ended up changing schools and, and transferring back to Texas after that third semester because I just couldn't get to the point where I felt like I should go and that I believed in what I was being taught. You're at college. You, uh, you don't serve a mission. You choose not to, to go on a, on a mission for the church. Uh, anything else in college that, uh, that's of notice? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember having a couple of discussions with professors who were really vocal about their, um, dis, disbelief that I would associate with, you know, the Mormons. And, um, and these guys were, I think, evangelicals also. Um, and it was just so, um, blatant that they, that they hated <laughs> that, that belief system. Um, and to, to please these guys, I mean, this was in my, my major, my major field of study. And it was a very small group of professors. Let's say it was, you know, 12 in that discipline. And, um, we all knew each other, and I was a teaching assistant for one of the professors, and one of them invited me to come to his church. So I went, and it was you know, what you would think. It was a very um, charismatic, um, large meeting. It was at night. It was almost like a gymnasium filled with you know kids who, who were really into this and, and having a great time and praising God, and I loved that. And um, so I went back probably two weeks later, and this was more of a Sunday service. It was it was more, I guess you, we would say, reverent, um, but sedate, where we listened to the preacher. And I would say it was probably not five minutes after I sat down that inexplicably the topic turned from whatever it was to how. Uh, bad an influence the Mormon missionaries were in this college community and, uh, all the problems that they were causing and all the, the, you know, 
falsehoods that they were spreading and how we needed to pull the scales from their eyes. Did that did that burn you a little bit or at this point do you feel like yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm, even though I was I'm a member of the church, I'm really not involved with the Mormon church anymore and and so it doesn't really bother me. No, it, it hurt. I guess the the takeaway for for me was being a Mormon comes with a lot of baggage and it's one of the more difficult things you can do and if you're not sure that's what you want to do, uh you should look around. So I moved back to Texas. I ended up checking out lots of different churches. Um, I remember going to Methodist churches, uh, evangelical churches, because I really started to believe some of the things that I'd been, you know, hit with. I started to question, is it really faith or is it really works? And is this, this choice that people have told me exists, uh, and that I'm on the wrong side of, is that something that I need to learn more about. And I started to question whether Joseph Smith was really a prophet, whether the Book of Mormon was really true, because uh, it seemed not to be, uh, based on the information that was easiest for me to, to find. Um, there were lots of uh, bookstores where I grew up that had, you know, Christian bookstores that had cult sections. And the, the attack the Mormon books are always in the cult section. And, you know, it was so much easier to associate with some other faith or none at all that I really lapsed. I stopped attending church from the time I was probably 19 until I was about maybe 22 and a half, 23. And I remember when I did start to go back, I sort of, it was sporadic. I went to um, a student ward occasionally um, in my college town. What a great bishop they had. What a nice group of people. But I never really attached to it. I just just came in and, and left and, you know, did a few things and, you know, didn't do most things. So then I graduate from college. I start looking for jobs. And one of the first places I get an interview, and this was this was hard. I felt you know, sort of privileged to have gotten this interview, uh, was with a sort of very difficult, um, uh, I guess, high-status Fortune 500 company um, that, that was based in, in Dallas. And so I go in for the interview, and they see BYU on my resume, and the interview turns from, wow, you've done really well in school, to tell us about that you're a Mormon. <laughs> and I freeze in this important interview, I just freeze. And they say to me, no, no, listen, we, we like Mormons. And I, I just look around the room and I think, okay, I, you know, I, I don't want to make a big deal about this, but why are you guys asking me these questions? I'm not sure that this is cool with the EEOC. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. They're breaking lots of rules. Yeah. And I point. thought, if this is the kind of organization, I think I don't really want to be here. And I sort of, you know, just checked out for the rest of the interview and left and um, started looking elsewhere. And I looked um, at a bank that specialized in the kind of work I wanted to do. They, they had a very high concentration in that asset class. And I went in for the interviews. Three positions were open, and I was down to the last set of interviews. And I went in to, to meet with the one of the executives, uh, one of the guys who would make the decision. And he looks at my resume, and I'll never forget this. He's leaning back in sort of an easy chair behind a huge desk 
I've got downtown Dallas in the background out of his you know, window on the 20th floor. And he looks over his reading glasses at me and he just sort of sniffs and he says, uh, you're not Mormon, are you? <laughs> and I just thought, what do I have to do? I mean, what, how do I escape this? And I just said to him, you know, uh, I was raised Mormon. Uh, I don't really do much with it. And that was my out. That's, that's what I did, Bill. I've got to think about that for the right. rest of my life. You know, that's the place I was. Where do I wish I had been? Someplace completely different. But that's what I have to think did, about. Did you get hired? Yeah. Yeah, but did, did I get hired at the expense of, you know, my, <laughs> my upbringing? And I realize, you know, you're saying that, and I understand where you're coming from, having, having gone through everything and being in a place now where you come from a completely uh, faithful perspective and looking back at times when, when you don't stand up for the church. But at the same time, too, I mean, you've got to, I mean, I certainly you look back on those times and realize that, that you were struggling and, and maybe not making heads of tails of, of what you knew and what you didn't know anyway. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just, I'm just, you know, a young person straight out of college trying to find a job and really maybe never having had a testimony up to that point. Right. Struggling with uh, all the baggage that sometimes comes along with being a Latter-day Saint, especially in communities where you've got evangelicals and, and other folks who... Who's, who look down upon Latter-day Saints and, and realizing all the, the stuff you're up against, I mean, that has to kind of weigh in on, on, on that whole situation as well. Right, right. Along this way, John, you're to the point here where you've, you've accepted a job at the expense of having to essentially not stand up for the church. Are you, are you in, your, in your testimony, are you completely away from having a testimony of the church, or are you just simply just not interested? You know, let me put it this way. In the church, people fall away for lots of different reasons. Some people fall away simply because it just doesn't capture their interest. It isn't appealing to them. And for others, they see it as something they need to get as far away from as possible. Where are you kind of on that spectrum? I'm focused on different things. I'm focused on trying to have a career. I love, you know, outdoor sports, things like that. So I'm thinking about other things that maybe kids in their young 20s who you know, get out of college and finally have a little cash, start thinking about. I spend, though, my vacation time visiting two guys that I knew from freshman year at BYU. And these are two very solid, I would say that in our dorm, these were the two guys that we all looked up to the most, who had their testimonies sorted, who had their study habits just down. These are great guys, great examples. And I stayed in touch with them. And, you know, this is, Bill, this is all pre-internet. So it's writing letters or calling on the phone every once in a while. And I really admired these guys, uh, both from Minnesota. uh, And they would, you know, invite me, hey, come, you know, stay with us. You can sleep on our couch. Let's go skiing. And I did. And while I was there, the topic turned to belief and how their missions had gone and Gosh, I missed that whole thing, and and uh, I had a lot of questions. And some of these attacks that I'd sort of been through and, and still thought about and, and took very personally and was hurt by, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know, why do you guys believe this when there's all this out there? And so one of the greatest things that happened to me, they said to me, look, go and talk to this religion professor that I know. This guy's name is um, Reed Benson. And Reed Benson turns out to be Ezra Taft Benson's son, I'm told. 
So I go to see Reed Benson, and he just you know, he lets me in his office, and he he, t- he takes uh, some time to talk to me, but he really refers me to this other place down the hill uh, in this sort of second-rate building on campus called Farms. And so I go into Farms, and I, I find this guy, and I wish I could remember his name. He's a terrific guy. I know I've got it somewhere. But he's uh, he's the director of Farms, and he listens to my story. And he says, you know, I think... I think we can get you there. And he loads me up. He gets a box, a big cardboard box, and he throws all these farms updates and all these videos and all these audio cassettes of Hugh Nibley. And he fills this thing to capacity. Now I've got, you know, 50, 60, 70 pounds worth of books and materials to get back to Texas on an airplane. But, but I, I'm, I, I'm actually thrilled about this, and I devour it, okay? And about the same time, at my work, there's become this Bible study group. This Bible study group has formed. And there's a guy on my floor who I would say is a, a superior of mine who leads this Bible study. And I, I care about my testimony of Jesus Christ, and I want to better understand the Bible. And I attend this class as sort of a, non-denominational believer uh, who hopes that he's got his uh, that hopes that he's he's got uh, everything sorted with uh, with Christ and um, they they let me talk one time and I turn the discussion to faith versus works and one of the books that I've been given by farms is this fabulous book called understanding Paul by Richard Lloyd Anderson and I start walking through the ladder of faith that's found in several places in the New Testament. And that doesn't go over well. <laughs> and I'm sort of disinvited to the Bible study. <laughs> and uh, this guy gets to the point where he's, he's stopping me every time I see him in the hallway at work, uh, the superior who leads the Bible study. And he's saying things to me like, hey, do you know, do you know that Joseph Smith just made up that word, telestial? Do you know? And he's just, it's its on his mind constantly. And he comes by my office one day, right before the weekly staff meeting, probably five minutes before, and he sits down and he starts going over probably 20 or 30 different things that he just can't believe anybody could ever believe about Mormons. And didn't you know this? And haven't you heard this? And how can you believe that? How could you possibly believe that? And I'm taking the position of, I'm not really a believer. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I was raised in this, you know, faith, but you're sort of attacking my parents and my family's beliefs, and I want to do something to defend that. So we take up a correspondence. And I should say on that day, his boss had to come tell him to get out of my office because I was, you know, know, there's going to be a harassment claim. Right. (laughs) But so we take up a quiet correspondence. And as I said, this is pre-internet. So I start answering his one-line questions by doing my own research. And I find a Deseret book, and I start working out these long answers um, with some of the Nibley that I've found and some of the Farms Insights and other little books like Thunders for a Word and, you know, The Truth About the Godmakers. And I, I start to try and, you know, make this okay in my own mind. Uh, and while still, you know, answering his questions. But it was this, 
you know, typical hit-and-run evangelical situation where he says one thing, you respond with vigor, and then we're on to the next topic. You know, he drops that and moves on to the next line of attack. And about this time, I get a call from a guy, sort of out of the blue, I think, but you know, clearly my parents have tipped off the local singles ward that I live <laughs> in Dallas, and they should seek me out. And this guy, who I can't remember his name either, but he he calls me up and he says, hey, man, I'm your home teacher. Do you want to start coming to the ward? And I say, yeah, probably. And he says, well, great. I'll, where do you live? Oh, geez, I'm probably 40 minutes from where that meeting house is. And he says, well, I'll come get you. And this guy, this guy comes to get me and uh, drives me to church for probably... I don't know, a, a five, maybe a six month period. Awesome. And I start thinking about my testimony and I think about, um, you know, what it means, uh, and, and the fact that I sort of gave up on something in my life, which was the church and, 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 B, and BYU. So I apply for graduate school and I apply two or three places and I, I did well enough that I started getting all these catalogs in the mail from expensive schools back east and, and I say, no, I'm going to apply to BYU. And I do. And I'm accepted. And Bill, you know, somewhere along the way, I must have had a meeting uh, with the bishop that counted as an ecclesiastical endorsement meeting. Right. <laughs> but I, I can't tell you that I, I, you know, passed or should have passed. But the, the bishop had enough sense to say, let's get this guy to BYU. And uh, it'll, it'll all work itself out on the next bishop. But... Uh, yeah, I should say too that I, that bishop, I said to him, do you think I should go to graduate school or do you think I should serve a mission? I'm, you know, 22, 23 at this point. No, I'm, I'm probably older than that. I'm probably 24. And he said, no, I, I feel that you shouldn't serve a mission, that you should just go to graduate school. And I felt a little disappointed about that because I sort of felt as though I, I let the church down or, you know, didn't, uh, fulfill my, my duty and, and probably missed out on a beautiful experience that my skiing buddies had told me about. So, you know, by the things I'm telling you, it's becoming clearer to me now as, as we discuss it that I, I cared more about the church than maybe I, I think I did at the time. So, John, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but it, it seems apparent to me you're having this correspondence back and forth with the manager at the bank, and he's throwing, you know, one-line questions to you. You're, you're sending him back these answers in which you're exploring the faith, you're doing research, you're getting books, you're reading on it. Is it at this point where you start to realize that within the faith of Mormonism, there are lots of things that actually come off as more reasonable, making more sense than the answers that other Christian denominations have for some of these questions? Well, um, I would say that there were defensible positions, right? I think I think about that Augustine Ferrer quote that, I'll quote it for you. It says, "Through ar- though argument does not create conviction, lack of it destroys belief. You know, what seems to be proved may not be embraced, but when no one shows the ability to defend, is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. And that's how I started to feel. Oh, I've got a reason, a rationale for accepting this. And I'll tell you, my heart started to be in it. Right. Right, things start to make sense. People are asking, you know, this guy's asking questions, and as you're looking up answers, you're going, hey, there are there are good, solid answers here, and it gives you kind of a foundation to start building on. Do you feel like you, in this discussion back and forth with the bank manager, begin to develop what I would call or what you would call a testimony? 
Yeah, I had a little tiny seed of faith. And, and Bill, one of the, <laughs> one of the most enjoyable moments in my discussions with that guy was when I walked in and, uh, he said to me, Hey, I heard you're, you're going to go to graduate school and get an, get an MBA. And I said, yeah, I'm going to BYU. <laughs> and the look on his face was, what have I done? You know, <laughs> I was going to ask if his jaw dropped. Um, and, and perhaps maybe even he recognized at this point that him, him pushing you a little bit, um, probably helped in this whole process of you developing your faith. I, you know, I think he just thought I was lost and I could never be recovered and he had done all he could for me. He's a, he's a nice man. I, you know, I wish him the best. He's, he's, he's not a bad person. I just, we were on different sides. Sure. You know, he was fighting for my soul. You know, I appreciate his effort. And, and I, and I certainly know where you're coming from too in the respects of whenever we get in these type of dialogues with other faith and especially evangelicals that they, the approach tends to be, and like you say, they're, they're, working to try and help you, to rescue you, to save you. But it is frustrating when they throw something out at you, you feel like you're in the midst of giving a good answer, and all of a sudden question number two comes in before the person's even conceded that you've given a decent answer on question number one. Happens a lot. You uh, you complete the BYU application. You're going to BYU to further your education. Uh, how was graduate school? I loved it. All right? So... And one of the main reasons I loved it was that I had a terrific um, bishop. I had a, a mentor um, in my bishop, a guy that, uh, you know, intellectually I just felt such a strong connection to, and spiritually he was a terrific coach. And his wife and his family really almost adopted me. You know, they thought, where did this guy come from, maybe? But uh, we've stayed very close, and, and I consider him almost as a second father. Um, you know, so as, as my bishop in my first interview, you know, I think he had me, uh, he had some assignments for me and, you know, he would say things like, well, read section 88 this week or read the miracle of forgiveness. And I'd come back the next day and say, okay, I read it and here's what I learned and these are my questions. And I was really passionately interested in everything about the church by this point. And I was, uh, I was, uh, really motivated to, get on track and and really to to settle down into a strong testimony and and find a a wife I guess I mean if, to find peace and happiness and all the joy that my friends who had stayed in the church uh and never taken a, a hiatus were now enjoying so do you feel like you're moving upward at this point right I mean you you feel like you're you're progressing you're kind of um Gaining more information, knowledge about the church, your faith is growing, the, the seed of testimony is sprouting. You've got this uh, gentleman who's, in a sense, kind of adopted you uh, into his family. Yeah, he, he's, he's uh, a great influence on me, a, a good example. Uh, he has answers, and he's thoughtful. And I'm surrounded by great people in my business school program, and lots of other good people in my ward and in my neighborhood. So it's a it's an environment where I'm flourishing and do well in school. Um, this bishop of mine, this great friend, um, I asked to ordain me to the Melchizedek priesthood, and then he, um, you know, says, "Let's get ready to take you, th- you know, through the temple." And I, you know, that's the one sort of unknown for me. You know, I don't really know what happens in the temple. So I take the temple prep class and, and, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, 
still shy about discussing everything with my parents. I, I think because of my past um, disassociation with the church, I don't really want to open up to my parents for some reason. And so we, I call my folks and I say, I'm going through the temple. I probably let them know that I'd been ordained. And, you know, maybe my dad said, gosh, I would have let you, I wish you would have let me know so I could have come out and, and done that. Right. <laughs> but he, he comes to my endowment. And uh, so I've got my bishop on one side, my dad on the other, and it's just great. And I, I have lots of questions right after the temple session and, but I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm really engaged in becoming a better member, a better uh, follower of Christ and, and getting a stronger testimony. And I remember getting on a program where I'm going to the temple, you know, two, two, possibly three times a week and just loving it. And, um, you know, I, I end up meeting a beautiful member of the church and, and, uh, in a very short period of time, uh, asking her to, to marry me and, we get married um, shortly after I, I graduate and, and start working for another company um, in Salt Lake. You, you get ordained. You go to the temple. Your your mom and dad now are completely aware of the progress that you've made. I'm sure that they're happy and ecstatic about about all of that. Kind of made amends with with the divide between you and the church, and things are going super well. You're obviously super active. You're loving it. You're reading everything you can get your hands on. Uh, where do you go from there? Well, I've I've never been inactive since, and I have a you know I said a wonderful wife, and she's somebody who's always believed, but not always believed in sort of a you know a, a cheap faith kind of way. She's you know she's had experiences that have brought her to a real um, deep, tender, and and I'll say you know fairly early appreciation of God's love, and so she's been a good influence on me. Um, lots of different callings, uh, you know, everything from scoutmaster to working in the youth to being executive secretary to being elders quorum president. And probably about, you know, maybe let's call it five, maybe eight years ago, I start to realize that I'm stuck, that uh, I haven't progressed the way I had, that the sprinting of my early, you know, reconciliation with the church has sort of mellowed into a, a light jog. And it's not that I've made mistakes or um, done things to push myself away from the church, but that energy, that drive, just isn't maybe sustainable. Or maybe it's that um, I'm not able to commit because of things that are going on with work and, and family the way I used to. And so I, I feel like I get stuck on a plateau. And that that plateau stays there um, you know, I stay stuck on that for probably, as I said, you know, eight, maybe, maybe even ten years. And I, I should say, Bill, that during this time, I, I've still got a lot of lingering questions about certain aspects of the gospel. I am not somebody who can just believe something easily. I wish I were gifted that way, but that's not my gift. I'm a more a believe on the testimony of others person that's that's maybe how it works for me right um and uh although in college i i did have and this was graduate school i did have an experience that was so overwhelmingly comforting and beautiful ah it just 
I don't want to talk about it too much, but um, I felt God uh, answer a prayer in a way that I know was not self-generated. This feeling of absolute peace that washed over me was outside my own experience or my own, you know, uh, making. And that stuck with me. And I sort of looked back on that and thought, well, I, you know, if I have, if I have felt that, if I have you know, sung the song of redeeming love once. I can, I can feel that again. But I wanted that more frequently. And it, it didn't come. You know, I, I, everybody's got their pet questions. I had no problem. Uh, Nibley got me so comfortable and, and loving the book of Abraham, the Pearl of Great Price. But, um, I could never really get there on the Book of Mormon. And the historicity of it really still, is sort of a challenge for me. I, I can't say that I, I I understand it all or you know think it fits perfectly, but that that's just up there on the shelf for me. Um, I've come a long way. There's been a, a lot of great material recently, um, and of course, you know, I read all the Sorensen. I'm pretty excited for his new yeah, the Mormon Codex, uh, new new Codex that's coming out. Yeah. But uh, you know, I've traveled a lot in in Latin America as well, and. Um, you know, I remember being in Copan one day with my guide, and it was just me, and, and uh, I'm there with this guide, this wonderful guide, and we come around a corner to one of the main temple complexes, and there's this group, and they're all sitting on the you know, sort of the ancient pyramid steps, and there's a, a guy leading this tour group, and he's leading an LDS tour group here in the middle of Honduras, and I sort of can't believe my eyes and ears and uh, I, I sort of eavesdrop for a little while, and then I go back, you know, on the rest of my walk with my guide, and he's shaking his head, and I say, what's the matter? And he says, ah, it just bugs me so much that these these guys come here and say all these things happened here, and it doesn't fit the, the timeline, and, and I just can't believe any of that, you know. <laughs> so, you know, there are things about it that, that make me pause as a believer, but... I I uh, have come a long way since that that day. So gotcha. You know, you talk about some of these tour groups that give. You know, you, you pay money, you go down to Central America, and, and these folks go around from pyramid to pyramid, telling you that this probably happened here and that probably happened there. And while I think for those whose whose knowledge or understanding of of this these types of issues probably is boosted from that type of stuff. For the, those who delve deeply into the Book of Mormon historicity and, and study up on these kinds of issues with Sorensen's map and those kinds of things, I wonder sometimes if these groups really do some harm as well in trying to say, you know, we know for sure it's right here and this uh, temple here that was used by the Indians is probably you know, where King Benjamin gave his address or whatever those situations are. Yeah, you mentioned the Inca and it. it it happens in Peru as well, um, but in in Central America, most of the Mayan sites, uh, you know, I think have some um, somebody who's written about them who says, "Hey, this is this is where this likely happened." Uh, you know, I, I think some of those tour leaders are really sincere, but I think some of them are maybe exaggerating things to the to the benefit of their future bookings. Sure. And um, I just hope that the people who go and and have those experiences you know, leave and do their own homework. Right. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, the, the 
Book of Mormon lands can't be overlapped with the Mayan lands, but uh, we, we've got a lot more work to do. Yeah, and we need to tread softly when we're going to tell people that things likely happened at this exact location. Even if the Book of Mormon takes place in that specific area, to start naming um, sites and, and starting to speak about where things actually occurred is probably stepping a little too far in the unknown. Yeah. Hey, hey, Bill, if I can go back one second. Sure. Uh, I want to t- tell you one of the greatest things that happened. I mean, um, when I was in college, when I was in graduate school at BYU, I, uh, I took some time to go back and say thank you to the farms people and kind of let them know where I'd ended up and how it had all worked out and how it had helped me. And I think the guy who really helped me the most, I want to say his name was Brent Hall. So Brent Hall, if you're out there, thank you. Um, you know, he was happy to see me, and, and I was happy to see that farms had sort of uh, grown up since, you know, the few years earlier that they, they really helped me. But I took some time one day after devouring, you know, thousands of pages of Nibley uh, to walk up to his office, which was on, I don't know, the third or fourth level of the, the library there on campus, the Lee Library. And I took my books in there to see him. And I remember I was wearing a plaid shirt, and uh, I saw this, that, that's, that's him. He's in the next room. And I talked to his secretary for a second. I said, look, it would be an honor to meet Dr. Nibley. Could I maybe have him sign my books? And at this point, I don't know, he's 103. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to have this meeting, you know, quickly because <laughs> this guy's, you know, how long is he going to last? So <laughs> I get to go in there and I say, you know, Dr. Nibley, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And, you know, I read these books and all he cares about is that I'm wearing a plaid shirt and that my name is, uh, that my name is Montgomery. And, uh, he wants to talk about Scotland and, uh, he ends up signing all my books and, uh, doing each one in kind of a funny, uh, different way. You know, some of them have jokes, uh, some of them just compliment my Scottish heritage, things like that. So those were two other highlights of graduate school. And I, and I took classes while I was, uh, you know, studying business, I also would take religion classes. Great class on uh, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls by Dana Pike and some other uh, classes. I went back to, to Richard Lloyd Anderson and took his class on the witnesses. And all of these things just really helped um, shape my testimony, that little seed of a testimony that I had. The uh, the stuff that Farms had given you early on and the things that uh, Nibley had signed for, you still have all that stuff? Oh, yeah. that's Those are treasures. Awesome. You probably pull those out every once in a while and just go through them? Yeah, I do. And, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet some of my other favorite authors since then. Um, the, the bishop that I mentioned who was such a good mentor to me is good friends with Jack Welch. So I've been able to meet and talk to him a couple of times and ask him a few questions. But I love his work on uh, you know, the, the, the temp, Sermon of the Temple, Sermon on the Mount, and um, really enjoy everything that uh, Sorensen's given us on Book of Mormon lands. And um, the guy that's really carried me lately, and maybe I can use this as the transition, um, about maybe, what was it, four or five years ago, uh, Tyrrell Givens gave a, a terrific devotional address at BYU called um, Lightning Out of Heaven. And I have listened to that talk, I don't know, 30, 40 times now. And to me, it is the most, um, it's just so meaningful. Um, Enough so that I actually contacted him and, and thanked him for his his thoughts. And since then, I've been reading more of what he's he's done. I just finished, you know, by the hand of Mormon, and um, bought my wife the 
the God Who Weeps for Christmas, which, you know, it, it was a surprise to me to see that that was a Deseret book, but um, there's a good interview that he's done recently with Sherry Dew that, that talks about how that happened. So you talk about how you were at this plateau for a while, and you wanted to to kind of have the progress be as fast as it was, as exciting as it was earlier on when you came back into activity. You talk about um, kind of progressing from reading about Nibley or Welch to Bushman and Givens. Where are you at today, and how did you get there? Uh, today I would say that I've, I've finally made it off the plateau. Um, I, I am a gospel doctrine teacher. I teach a class of maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 adults every week. And I really throw my heart into it. And um, I've been doing that since, uh, let's see, we're in Doctrine and Covenants now, this year. And I started in uh, the last half of the Old Testament. And it's really helped me, especially last year with the Book of Mormon, um, appreciate it in a in a new way. And you know, stop stop worrying so much about, some of my questions, and and thinking more about the doctrine and and what's really being said there. I'm never never going to dismiss my questions, but I put them uh, up on a shelf while I, you know, work on other things. And I, I think about a talk that Daniel Peterson gave. I think it was called "An Apology for Apologetics," where he talks about, you know, the testimony that anybody can give is that this is good. And that's a testimony that I was really comfortable giving. And if, you know, if you're in my ward or you know me, you know, I'm not one of these people who stands up and says, I know this and I know that. I hope. I believe. I pray. And, um, you know, through that process and that, that study, I've really started to see the fruits of it all. And some of the questions that I've had, I've been able to find terrific, you know, logic-based answers to. And some of the other ones, I've just had so much peace that I don't, they don't seem important to me anymore. It's almost as though you say to yourself, oh, thank you for that affirmation. I withdraw the question. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, I feel stupid asking now. And so, you know, I have my, my set of pet questions. Um, you know, if somebody out there can help me walk me through how Joseph Smith is a literal descendant of Joseph of Egypt, I'd love to know about that. But... Uh, uh, you know, that's just this month. I, you know, I, I think the takeaway for me is that I have felt charity. I have felt the love of Christ. I have felt grace filling me up and giving me the love and the strength that I need to, you know, raise my kids and, and get through, you know, difficult situations maybe at work where, um, it, you know, you could work into an argument, but instead you, you, you know, in, work out uh, a good well, Christian solution. And I, I used to think that it was um, that by study and also by faith, the study part was all the apologetics and all of the, you know, his, historical arguments and the, the, all that stuff, all the logic. And that the, the by faith was the, the doctrine. And now I am convinced that you need to be studying the doctrine, and that you may need to apply faith to the logic or the or the historicity. You know, a lot of people look down on putting things on a shelf, and they use that as a way to say, you know, you're, you're just pushing away the inevitable. And yet, like you, 
I think when we are able to say, look, I can't know everything, not everything's going to make sense, like you're pointing out here, the difference in what your progression was in understanding faith, that faith isn't faith isn't this knowledge based in spiritual things, it's, it's this choice you make that not having all the answers, you're still able to move forward and act. Yeah, that's that's the givens. You're on this, uh, you know, and and let's bring Nibley in too. You're on a on a continuum. You're on a, a a line, and Babylon's that direction, and Zion's that direction, and you know, it's about choice. It's about which direction do you turn? Where are you facing? That's more important, maybe than than even position. So we talk about people who look down on us as Latter-day Saints who don't have all the answers, putting things on a shelf. But like you, I've come to the realization that if you're able to do that and really understand what faith is and to go ahead and move forward anyway, one thing that I am, at least in my own life, certain of is that President Kimball was absolutely right when he said faith precedes the miracle. And what I mean by that is the more we act in faith, the more spiritual assurance, and it may not come in a day and it may not come in two weeks, it may be months, it may be years, but the more spiritual assurance that comes along to say, hey, you know what? You're going in the right direction. That's it. You have to step into the dark. And like Given says, if you've turned towards Christ and you recognize him as the most worthy uh, being to emulate, then that speaks of the best in you and, and uh, can help you progress. Um, th- there was a, a talk by a I think you would call him an amateur historian who um, he, he did a presentation recently in the last few years on you know what he had learned about polygamy in the early church and he he was he was encountering things that troubled him and he said and I can't I can't put this out here the, the way that he did so beautifully but um, he said if you can consec- I said to God I'm going to study this but I promise you that I will be faithful to you. No matter what comes from this, you have my my commitment. And he said he consecrated his brain. Um, and, and from that, and from that commitment, everything else either was, uh, was answered um, or he had other assurances for and his testimony flourished from the whole process. In fact, you know, it was more like he was... He was given answers. What he got from it was was assurance and knowledge that was so much better than he ever could have achieved if he had just sat down with his books. I've had interviews with Brian Whitney. I've uh, listened to podcasts of other members of the church who who are in the scholar, the academic field, and, and work with things of scholarship. And almost to a T, those who are willing to act in faith and then delve into the original source material to try to answer some of these tough questions, almost to a T, seem to grow in faith and testimony as they do so. And and I find that, you know, for, for those of the individuals of the church who struggle and who, who are in a faith crisis, who are trying to find their way through it, it just, and I know it doesn't seem like it should be that way. Like, hey, I'm going to delve into the original source material, and I'm going to uncover even more problems, and I'm going to go further into losing my testimony. But I think listeners need to realize that it's actually the opposite that happens, that the more people act in faith and move forward, but still are in the midst of dealing with tough stuff, that for many of them, if not a whole, you know, large segment of them, 
answers come, things begin to build line upon line, principle upon principle, and they, people begin to have these testimonies that, uh, that grow even in the midst of what you would think is dealing with tough issues. Yeah, I, I think I can bear testimony of that myself. Um, I don't know why we're so surprised. Isn't this what we're told will happen? Right. You know, you, you have faith, you act in faith, and you'll receive an increase afterward. Yeah, I love Alma 32 where he, Alma's talking about building faith like a seed, and he says, is your faith perfect? And he says, nay, it is only perfect in that thing. And I love that because... Sometimes we feel like, you know, we get an answer on one subject and that just means the entire gospel's perfect in our minds. But no, it's, it's building things just a little at a time. Maybe your testimony is perfect in tithing. And so now you move on to the word of wisdom. Or maybe now you move on to understanding the mercy of God or better understanding the other blessings of the atonement. Um, it just seems like in the gospel, it, if we just tackle the little things that are in front of us, as you were kind of hinting at earlier, We'll move forward, and if we recognize that faith is not knowing things perfectly, in fact, what does Paul say in Hebrews 11, that faith is to hope for things, the evidence of which not seen. And to me, that's just gorgeous. I mean, and we don't point it out that right way, right? We teach Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5, and we, we bang that scripture in everybody's heads, and yet there's so many scriptures that testify of a completely different way of gaining a testimony. There are, there are different uh, avenues. There are different gifts. Uh, God's got a way for each of us to get there. Right. And if if I can bear testimony of Jesus Christ and the atonement and that the church is good, that's valuable. I, you know, maybe I can't give you a testimony that, you know, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec is the right, <laughs> right. spot or, right. you know, you know, that uh, whatever. But I've got value. Yeah. My testimony is, is meaningful and it, it brings me joy. Real joy to to be able to, um, uh, to 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 teach the gospel and to yeah feel the peace that I now feel. Right. I was thinking about that today in testimony meeting, and like you, my testimony is worded different than I probably would have worded it five years ago or ten years ago. And like you, I deal much more with the things I. There's some things I know, some things I hope, some things I. I believe in, and, and I choose my words carefully. But I was sitting up on the stand today and thinking about my testimony, and like you, I thought to myself, you know, yes, there's things I don't have answers to, but I absolutely have a testimony that being in the church, serving in the church, being a member of it, is just, it's brought tenfold blessings into my life that I know I wouldn't have had if I'd have been in any other walk of life. Amen. <laughs> you talked about earlier, I think you... It was out of Doctrine and Covenants section 46, thinking maybe it's verses 13 and 14, which says it's given unto some to have uh, the gift of, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop it up, but given the gift of faith to know that Jesus is the Christ and it is given unto others to, to believe on their words that they may have eternal life also. And I love how you said earlier that, you know, at times you've been in a place where your makeup is such that your gift is to just believe on the words of others and not necessarily have those spiritual experiences yourself and what a strength it is to have a gift to be able to lean on the words of others and to, to move forward not having your own answer. You know, we're, we're in a church. We're in a family. We're not individuals in this process. We're not on this journey alone. And we can help each other. Um, I can carry you through, uh, if you have questions about, uh, 
you know, what Jesus did and didn't do. Or uh, if you have questions about the Pearl of Great Price, you need to carry me a little on, you know, maybe some Book of Mormon things. We're all here to help each other as a ward family and as a church, and that's beautiful. Right. And it works. You uh, you talked about Terrell Givens. By the way, I ho- you could probably know, but he's a hero of mine as well. And he's helped me restructure what I have to believe in to be a member of the church and what I have flexibility in to not believe in and essentially set off to the side as as the opinion of somebody or not official doctrine. And I, I came to a realization that the bucket of things that we have to believe in is so much smaller than the average member realizes. And and you talked about how his talk, Lightning Out of Heaven, was uh, was kind of a, a defining moment for you or one of these things you've looked back on with kind of a marker in your, your spiritual growth is, is helping you progress. And, and maybe just to share a little story, I, I had a moment about five years ago. I'm called to be a bishop. I'm talking to the youth of my, my ward. Some of them are struggling. I'm talking to members of, my, members of my ward. Some of them are struggling. And I'm telling them to just hang in there and to keep trying that God values the effort. And yet, in my own testimony at the time, I was this work, 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 hammer it out, perfect yourself, you know, set the bar high and you bust your butt and you get there. And all of a sudden, in my own personal life, a few things happened where I just hit rock bottom and realized that I was not going to, uh, wasn't going to perfect myself on my own. And I became quite discouraged. And like, like you turning to Givens in the lightning out of heaven talk, a talk I came across was Brad Wilcox's uh, His Grace is Sufficient. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Yeah, I have. It's great. It's great. And for me, it changed the whole dynamic on what grace means within the LDS church and what I have to do on my part to then combine with Christ's merits, mercy, and grace from the atonement and get me back to the celestial kingdom, to get me back to heaven, to get me back into the presence of my heavenly Father. And maybe, you know, one thing the two of us maybe can share is that if anybody out there is is feeling discouraged or struggling or having a hard time reconciling the ways in which you see the historical aspects of the church and how things fit in a historical context, and I've listened to that talk as well, Lightning Out of Heaven, perhaps listeners could take those two talks and listen to them, and I think, I think they both offer so much for every member of the church uh, to have some growth. Yeah, and... One of the things that uh, Fiona and Terrell Givens uh, talk about a lot in this new book um, is that, you know, it's okay to, to, to say that you believe, that you have faith. We've had this unfortunate cultural shift to using the language of knowing. Yeah. And it's not gospel. It's not necessary that you know. Um, you, you can have faith. You can believe. That is... <laughs> actually encouraged right. uh it's you know that's 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 a it's a a natural yeah. step faith faith is not knowledge it's it's to act in the absence of knowledge it's it's to move forward anyway i would rather have faith right. any day than knowledge right and we and you're right we set up a culture that sets knowledge up as the desirable trait and yet knowledge is nowhere to be found in the uh, principles and ordinances of the gospel. Yeah, well, Jesus said, uh, you know, blessed are those who who, you know, who believe, uh, you know, n- not necessarily those who who had it right. shown to them, right? I mean, right, you got it, Thomas. 
are there any other things you feel like you want to cover? Yeah, I want to say something that you can't cut out, which is, Bill, um, you know, thank you for all that you do on the podcast. It really is a pleasure to listen to what you put out there. I know this has got to take uh, time away from your family, and I know you've put a lot of thought and time into it, and you, you've really um, meant uh, a, a lot to me, and I've shared your your work with, with other people, and um, I hope uh, you continue to do this and, and know that it has real value. I, uh, I appreciate that greatly. It, it is be- Don't be modest. No, it's and, true. I, and I do. I, okay. I mean, I appreciate it greatly. It's, it's become a love of mine only because the more I'm doing this, the more I realize how many people out there need things like this, a place to go where things are are talked about in a different way and more out in the open because there's people out there who are struggling and hurting and, and having a hard time and, and perhaps their support group or the people around them aren't as open or understanding of some of these issues and don't know how to approach them. And I just hope that this podcast is a place for people to not only get answers, that that's kind of secondary, but a place to feel validated and to feel like, hey, I'm not alone out there. Yeah, you're you're not alone. And you know, Bill, it's great to to talk with you um, and to to hear what you have to say um, because you know, you're you're a bishop. You're active in the church. Your testimony is strong, and you still uh, understand the struggles that that people have had because you've had a faith crisis. And and you 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 know, you're one of those who who recognizes the value of these people who care so much that they really want to know. And uh, who, who knowledge maybe doesn't come easily for, but who, who who put the time and the effort into trying to gain a better testimony, and sometimes it's slow in coming. Right. right. Well, don't give up. Thank you, John Montgomery. Thank you so much for being on the program. I have uh, really appreciated you being on Mormon Discussion. Thanks, Bill. Now on to the sacrament talk by John Montgomery. That's something gnawing at my mind for a few weeks, and I wanted to develop it, and I wanted to share it, and I. I didn't have a way to do that. It's kind of a joke, though, that because I'm willing to talk at the drop of a hat, um, he usually consents to let me choose a topic. But this time is the first time he's ever said to me, uh, you know, I, I've got something I want you to speak on. And it was uh, intellectual versus spiritual conversion, which is exactly, exactly, exactly the thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, I grew up everywhere and kind of nowhere when we finally settled, uh, we were in Texas, and I was 13, and I went to a junior high and a high school where being a member of a weird minority uh, was not really helpful. I can remember um, lunchroom comp- uh, confrontations, um, being martyred by a youth minister on a friend's church ski trip, um, having friends' parents warn them about associating with Mormons, uh, things like that. I did have loving leaders and kind parents and um, some good friendships through church, but I grew to dislike very much the additional discomfort of my parents' religion. I never hated the church, but at times I became deeply frustrated with why I was asked to believe so many things that were so difficult, much more difficult than what my friends had to believe. I had no interest in mission service. How could I advocate for something that I didn't even like? My struggles really weren't about overall doctrine. They were mainly about quirky things, statements by church leaders, Book of Mormon historicity, a few oddball comments from the 
19th century, but it really didn't take much for a, a teenager, tw- early early 20s believer. Um, during college, I became inactive, and I spent a lot of time visiting other churches because I always felt a belief in God. I always knew or thought I knew what right and wrong were. I just didn't know what right was in this, which I thought was the biggest decision. And I had several professors candidly let me know, for whatever reason, that uh, they didn't really think too much of uh, my parents' religion. On at least two occasions while visiting other churches, the topic magically turned to uh, spirited rants on the evils of Mormonism. And I just wondered... Like, how do these guys know I'm here? This is a congregation of 300 people. Do I stink? What, how, how do they know to do this? When I graduated from college, also in Texas, I went to work for a company where one of my superiors was a professional Mormon hunter. Uh, his admitted goal was to destroy any of my residual faith and pull the scales from my eyes. His discussions of doctrine were always peppered with attacks on the church, its leaders, and ad hominem attacks on its followers. So we, because I didn't really believe a lot of the things he was saying, they just didn't sound like the church that I knew and the, the church that my parents belonged to or the kind of people my parents were. I, I took up a correspondence with him, and my efforts were initially driven by a defense of my family. So he would lay a charge, and I would respond, and this was all pre-internet, right? This wasn't look it up online, get a nice answer, print it out. It was, you had to find it somewhere in a book. Where did you find these books? And who had these books? And it was hard. It was slow. And, um, you know, I learned more than I needed to ever know probably about hermeneutics and Gnosticism and Masonry and textual criticism. I spent a lot of time and effort on those letters and I kept a lot of them. And his response, every time I'd give him a big response to one of his claims, maybe it was a three page letter, he'd Write me a little note with maybe three lines on that, and then he'd move on to something else. So it was like hit-and-run evangelism. And he, at the same time, though, I had kept two friends, both guys from Minnesota, both guys that I met during my one, my only, my freshman year as a BYU undergrad. Now, I was working, but they were still in school because they'd done mission service. And so talking to them on the phone, they said, hey, why don't you come up to Salt Lake? Let's go skiing. It's been a long time. So I came up and I did a ski trip there and I slept on their couch at the Riviera Apartments in Provo. And they encouraged me to take a day visit, just take one day out of your week and go meet with some religious professors up at the BYU. And I wanted to know. I still wanted to know. And so, you know, I took a day and they had said, why don't you go try this guy? So I went to go see that guy. And then that guy sent me to go see another guy. And that guy told me, why don't you go down here and go see this other guy? And by the time it was done, because they could tell I really, really wanted to know, uh, I left with a heavy box of books and articles and videotapes. And it was all free. They just loaded me up with this stuff and said, listen, take this back. Just, it's going to be okay. Just calm down. Take this stuff back. You're going to be all right. And so then I became, I began this painful, pleading search to know. And it took at least a year. And I read the entire LDS canon. I read every word carefully. I read it out loud to myself in my apartment. And I sought answers to all my questions. And Aaron's seen these before, but there are all these residual 
post-it notes left over from that era. And like I would read the scriptures and I would write these microscopic questions to myself as I read. And I have this collection of all these post-it notes, all these little questions. Like this one says, this one says, uh, how would Laban have Jeremiah's prophecies? Compared to 1 Nephi 7.14, was Jeremiah cast into prison or a cistern? You know, like this was the stuff I was worried about. But it was really important to me. And I was really hung up on every little detail. And about this time, I got a random call from a home teacher. I hadn't been to church in years. And some home teacher guy, I wish I'd remembered this guy's name, but he called me up out of the blue, and he encouraged me to attend the, the singles ward, which was in sort of Richardson. And I lived in sort of downtown. And this guy went out of his way, because I, didn't, I was the only guy in Dallas, too cheap to buy a car, I guess, that had a job. And so this guy came down 15 miles out of his way every Sunday to pick me up to take me to church. He'd take me to church, and then he'd take me back home. And within a year, my life had changed a lot. So I was enrolled in the MBA program at BYU, and I met a lot of other friends there who encouraged my progress. And within my first year of that program, I received my patriarchal blessing. I'm 20, 25 when this is happening. I got my patriarchal blessing, I was ordained an elder, and I received my endowment. And during this time, I also had a few intensely spiritual experiences. And one of those really stands out. It was me in my apartment, laying on a bed, just at the end of my road. Just, I am so overwhelmed with sadness. And I'm praying to God, and I say, can't you take some of this away from me? Can't I just have an answer? And this thing happened. And this thing was sort of like a wave. And it was warm. And I'm in a moment of, I'm just, I'm done. And this wave goes like this. It just kind of flows over me. And then it just sort of, there's a little ripple back. And when it's done, it was just kind of like, oh, I'm so sorry. I withdraw the question. You know, I'm embarrassed I even asked. Thank you so much. It felt great. I was done with feeling bad. That was it. Now, that wasn't the end of my questions. That wasn't the end of my struggle, but it sure helped. That's not something that I could have generated, right? That's not something that could come from inside of me. If it is, I don't have a, I don't have the gear to figure out what's real and what's not real. But that thing can happen. But I still sort of struggle to know the way a lot of you eight-year-olds that get up here every first Sunday seem to know. And I find some comfort and I find some minor parallels in the story of uh, Dr. Richard Bushman, who was professor of history emeritus at Columbia University. And he's the guy who wrote the book called Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. He went from Portland to Boston to go to college. And he was a promising student. And so he had some mentors. And one of these mentors took him aside one day and said, you know, i got to tell you, Kennedy, you just need to know that a lot of people really consider Mormonism to be garbage. And he was taken back with that. His first response was indignation. And then he soaked it up. And later he realized that it was a characteristic event in his early maturation. Um, he began strengthening his testimony in part as a defense of his family. And he began to rail against what he calls the massive Eastern academic culture. So in the face of what he felt was overwhelming skepticism, he did have a crisis of faith. Now, he went on a mission, 
but he faced many doubts and questions, and his primary question was, is there a God? And he says that although he was a he says that although he is a committed believer now, and Dr. Bushman serves as an active patriarch in the church, um, he never fully recovered all of his faith. But he says he did a weighing. Okay, a weighing. Think about that. And he didn't come up with a proof the way he would do in science, but he came up with an affirmation, an idea that this is right, this is good. And he says that you know now he, he finds the church to be a very fertile environment and a place of love and brotherhood and personal growth. <clears throat> Dr. Bushman describes that feeling of those who've been attacked for their belief in the church or their belief has been attacked. It's like somebody who's been stung by a swarm of bees. And they come up to you and they say, ah, look at me, I've been stung by all these bees. And you say to them, let me, let me do something for you. And you, you take one stinger out and you put some ointment on you and administer to it and you put a band-aid on it and you say, how do you feel now? And this is a guy's a historian who people come to for answers and can you help me? I'm really struggling with this question about Joseph Smith. And they come to him and all he can do is pull out one stinger. And he says to them, well, how do you feel now? And they say, what's got all these other stingers? And he's like, it just takes so much time to recover. It's such a slow process. But, but uh, I am convinced um, that there must be this opposition. And there's a great talk, a talk that I love and that I go to all the time. And I've written to the author and I've, I've really become kind of a groupie. But uh, this is a talk called Lightning Out of Heaven by a guy named Terrell Gibbons. And he says, he calls it a dynamic tension. And he says that opposition or questioning is really important in helping us make a choice. And the choice is what matters. He says, I'm convinced that there must be grounds for doubt as well as belief in order to render the choice more truly a choice. And therefore, the more deliberate and laden with personal vulnerability and investment. He says, one is, it would seem, provided with sufficient materials out of which to fashion a life of credible conviction or dismissive denial. We are acted upon, in other words, by appeals to our personal values, our yearnings, our fears, our appetites, and our egos. What we choose to embrace, to be responsive to, is the purest reflection of who we are and what we lay, what we love. That is why faith, the choice to believe, is in the final analysis an action that is positively laden with moral significance. He says there's evidence in the world that the guys who run the church or any church are just scheming or deluded imposters and that the scriptures are fabulous fiction. And then there's also evidence of a divine guiding hand over the cosmos of um, that God, God calls and anoints prophets and that his word is made manifest. You can choose either one. You're stuck in the middle. It's, it's up to you to decide. But what determines that decision? And he says, it's your heart. There is a heart that in these conditions of equilibrium and balance, and only in these conditions of equilibrium and balance, equally enticed by the one or the other, as Nephi says, that we are truly free to choose belief or cynicism, 
faith or faithlessness. Why then is there more merit given this perfect balance in believing in the Christ than in believing in a false deity or in believing in nothing at all? Perhaps because there is nothing in the universe or in any possible universe more perfectly good, absolutely beautiful, and worthy of adoration and emulation than this Christ. A gesture of belief in that direction, a will manifesting itself as a desire to acknowledge his virtues as the paramount qualities in a divided universe, is a response to the best in us, the best and noblest of which the human soul is capable. For we do indeed create gods after our own image, or potential image, and that is an activity endowed with incalculable moral significance. Now, we have a lot of people in this room, and we have a lot of people in our ward, and we have a lot of people who are at a lot of different stages in belief in the gospel. Some of us have firm conviction, never questioning. Some of us, like me, hope and pray and, and work. And then there's some of us who have sort of decided, this isn't for me. What can we do to help those who are either in the middle or who are deciding to do something else? Daniel Peterson's a famous writer. He's a, he's a uh, scholar of uh, Near East writings and uh, Islam at, at BYU. And he wrote um, what's called an unagelic, un- unapologetic apology of apologies. And that is... <clears throat> That is him saying that it's important to do study and faith. He published that about a year ago. For the vast majority of people, faith isn't a matter of reason or argumentation, but of hearing the testimonies of others and of coming to conviction on the basis of personal experience. Missionaries quickly discover that it is a testimony that changes hearts, not chains of scriptural references, let alone a book from the Maxwell Institute. But that is not to admit that evidence and logic are wholly irrelevant to religious questions. Apologetics is no mere game or luxury. Someone who has been confused and bewildered by a sophistry of antagonists, and often, though not always, that is exactly what it is, might well justly regard apologetic arguments as a vital lifeline permitting the exercise of faith, as a way of keeping the spark going long enough to rekindle a fire. What am I trying to say? What is he trying to say? Can you get there by study? Can you really get there? No. Can you get there all the way by faith? Maybe. But if you're somebody who is questioning and and wanting to know, and really one of these people who... I mean, you're only asking these really hard questions if you really, really care. If you're questioning, can someone doing this study coming up with arguments that can defend things that are difficult to understand help you? Yes, can. Um, He compares it to faith being the seed, just like Alma says. Faith faith being a seed, just like Alma says. But you've got to clear the ground of weeds before you can plant the seed. And that's what logic and study does for us. Austin Ferrer, a 20th century English theologian, wrote that, Though argument does not create conviction, lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, 
But when no one has shown the ability to defend, it is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. Now, in the New Testament, we have ample evidence that we need to, as believers, not only study our faith, but be prepared to defend it. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And part of the baptismal covenant, Mosiah 18, is to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things, even unto death. So some of us will be better at witnessing through powerful, heartfelt testimony, and other of us will be better at clearing weeds through logic, evidence, or explanation. Peterson thinks that the task has two parts. Obviously, those we hope to bring to Christ and to his church need to believe that the gospel is true. That's part one. But two, they also need to believe that it's desirable. Desirable. Now that second task opens up the work for everybody. It doesn't take any special learning, any special knowledge or training to communicate to people that the gospel is desirable. And both approaches are valuable. I don't have time to tell you about Think of Nehemiah building the wall. We all have our part, right? We have an obligation to defend our positions in the church. If you're going to take a position, if you're going to take a belief, then you have to defend it. So you're either standing there with the sword of testimony, or you better be standing there with a trowel of defense and reason. I went to New York recently. If you've been to New York recently, you know that the Book of Mormon is famous suddenly. I was surprised by all the press that was given to a Broadway show that purports to be about two Mormon missionaries. But I was also impressed, more impressed, by the church's elegant handling of the situation. The official statement noted that while the show might provide entertainment for an evening, the real Book of Mormon and its teachings could provide a lifetime of answers. And what I really liked is that in Times Square, on the big screen, and on the top of all the taxi-top billboards, were plastered appeals for people to visit mormon.org and watch the beautiful I Am a Mormon series of testimonies. Now, if you haven't watched these, you need to watch them. And if you can't find a good movie to watch on a weekend, sit down and watch all 50 of them, and you will not be wasting your time. It makes a great day. It makes a great way to start your morning. Watch these. They're terrific. Better yet, you could go on and add your testimony, maybe not as a video, but they have a place where you can post your comments and post your photo and add to the discussion and the body of evidence and belief. You could also post your testimony on YouTube. Go look up Mormon testimonies on YouTube and see how many hits you'll get. I mean, if you're shy about your convictions, I have this. I'll talk to you guys. I won't talk to my parents about this stuff. I won't talk to people really in Salt Lake about it, sometimes. But I'm much more adept at this when I'm in a foreign country or when I'm around people that I know I'll never see again. So if you want to do this, you can go online and record your testimony and it'll be out there for people in Nigeria, Mongolia, you know, places you'll never go and never meet. And it can be a strength for them and you never have to meet them. So the bumper sticker for this is Think Globally, Act Locally. This... I don't know if you know it yet. Maybe you haven't been here for very long. But this place, the Wasatch Ward, is a really special place. If you're a member of this ward, that means you're a member of a family that is ready to love and support you. 
It means that you have people here who care about you and want to help you. If you're struggling with your testimony, or if you feel depleted, or if you're lost, or if you feel alone, if God seems distant, let your Ward family know. We and your Father in Heaven will accept you without judgment and there's no, without any uh, accusations of disloyalty. Some people have called this ward the island of misfit toys, and I like that. We are all different. I wouldn't fit in in Bountiful very well, I'm afraid. I, and some of us will move through here pretty quickly, and don't. But some of us need to stay a little bit longer. I've been here for 12 years. <clears throat> now, you may have people in this audience, people in your family, who've been stung by a bunch of bees. Remember that. These are the people who maybe got hurt because they cared so much and they, they did their homework. And maybe they, they stumbled because they found some things that weren't what they had thought before or they didn't, it just didn't sit well with them. We can help those people. We can inspire them by what we say and do. Now, those people don't need to feel like they're outside the church. They don't feel like, they need to feel like they need to abandon their word family. They're trying to find out what's right and true. And our duty is to love them and support them and to try and bring them back through friendship and love. I respect people who seek like that. I've been there, and uh, I know how you feel. Um, I, I just want to leave. I'm totally out of time. I have way too much stuff to talk about, so I'll be quiet. But I just want to leave with my testimony that uh, uh, my testimony that God does hear your prayers. He does care. It's crazy to think. It's humbling to think, but he does care, and he will answer your prayers and uh, uh, manifest himself to you and take away the doubt and the fear. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That concludes this episode of Mormon Discussion. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless, and have a great day. the ground of every blessing Tune my heart to Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Fixed upon it, mount of thy Oh,
Seal it, seal it for.